Amen. Well, how can I be sure? That's the question that is being answered in this passage today. Specifically to do with God answering prayer and keeping his promises. Can I trust him? Now, that's a question I think that we ask in other areas of life. How can I be sure? How can I be sure that this uh, website is genuine? Is the weather forecast accurate? Is my doctor's diagnosis correct? Is my mechanic competent or truthful? How can I be sure? We want reliable information to make decisions because there's often a lot at stake. But far more important than all of those questions is whether God is telling the truth. Can we be sure of what he says in the Bible about Jesus, about death and judgment, about heaven and hell? Because it's not just our possessions, our car or our money or our health that we're risking, is it? We're risking eternity. Perhaps you're here today and you're not yet a Christian. Perhaps you're investigating or still deciding. We are glad that you're here. We hope that you keep asking these questions. So today, I think, is an especially good day for you to be here because this is such an important question. How can I be sure? But even if you are a Christian, and that's most of us, it's important that we trust God's promises. Because every day we have to make decisions based on how reliable we think God is. Costly obedience. Courage to step out in faith. Every day we have to make tough choices to put one thing first rather than something else first. Will he provide me a way out of this temptation? Will he never let me go? Will he work all things for good? These are promises God has made that we have to trust every day. Now what we're going to learn from these first verses of Luke is that God is always trustworthy. He always hears our prayers. He'll never let you down. And he actually wants us to know that so that we will trust him in our lives. You see, it's not just true that he is those things, but he wants us to know those things are true. How can I be sure? Now, that's actually why Luke wrote his biography of Jesus. Uh, he wasn't the first person to record uh, this history. Uh, in fact, verse 1, it says that many had already done just that. They'd uh, written a history about Jesus. Uh, but verse 3, Luke tells us that he carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And then he writes an orderly account. His sources are accurate, his research is thorough, his writing is organised and systematic. And we find out that he did it for a person called Theophilus. Now he was probably Luke's patron, uh, the one who commissioned him and paid for him to sit down and write uh, his two-work biography of Jesus. Uh, if he wasn't the, the official patron, he at least uh, supported him financially while he wrote it. Now, what's his goal for Theophilus? What does he hope Theophilus will gain? Look at verse 4. So that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. So that he will be sure of what he believes. 
Now, that's not normally the way people think about religious faith, is it? They think that you have to believe despite the evidence. Uh, that you don't use your brain, you don't think, you just have faith as an alternative to thinking. That's what most people think. But Christian faith is based on evidence. Examining the evidence, using your brain and then making an informed decision. What is the most reasonable explanation for this evidence? Christian faith is more like a judge examining the evidence in a trial than a child believing in the tooth fairy, which is the way some people think about Christian faith. Jesus tells Doubting Thomas, put your fingers in these holes, he says, so that you can be sure. Or when Jesus heals the crippled man who they was lowered through the roof, why did he do that? To prove he had the authority to forgive sins. He's providing evidence. God wants us to have a solid foundation for what we believe. Christian faith is supported faith, not blind faith. Now that's reassuring, isn't it? Because there will be plenty of pressure in your life to doubt, to give up, to believe something else. And so from verse 5 we see the fruit of Luke's careful research. The date marker is the time of King Herod of Judea. That's Herod the Great. Uh, he ruled under Rome's delegated authority from 37 BC to 4 BC. Uh, Herod may have been great, but he very quickly steps out of this story. <laughs> Half a verse is all the space he gets. Of much more interest to Luke is Jesus and how Jesus fits into the big story of Israel. But Luke doesn't begin with Jesus. He takes a couple of steps back. He doesn't even begin with John the Baptist. He begins with John's father, Zechariah, uh, who, as Cheryl helpfully pointed out, is not the Zechariah we've been looking at for the last number of weeks. At the second half of verse 5, we find out Zechariah is a priest. He and his wife, Elizabeth, are both descended from Aaron, the original high priest, Moses' brother. So straight away, as we hear that, we're thinking about the long history of God who has provided leaders to save his people. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were not just well-born, but they lived good lives as well. Look at verse 6. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. They were blameless, but here's the complication, verse 7, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. That's a euphemism. You know, it's a nice way of saying they were old. <laughs> no kids, but there are two obstacles. Elizabeth is, uh, there are two obstacles to kids. Elizabeth is barren and they're old. Uh, so they're not very hopeful. Uh, they gave the baby clothes away years ago. Uh, they converted the baby's room into the guest bedroom. Now, it would have caused them plenty of heartache, even shame. Because apart from missing out on the joy of kids, most people who looked at their life would have said that they were childless because God was punishing them. They must have done something wrong. And as we hear this, we're reminded of other childless couples in Israel's history. Can you think of any? Abraham and Sarah. 
they were also old and childless. Uh, then their son Isaac and his wife Rebecca, they were childless, they were barren. Uh, and then their son Jacob and his wife Rachel, Rachel was barren. Uh, we can add to that Hannah, who was barren and yet, after asking for God's help, uh, gave birth to Samuel, who became a prophet. Now, in every case, as we hear about barren women, God stepped in to act in the Bible. He was faithful, he answered their prayers, and they had children. Now, that's all background, that's setting the scene. The action begins in verse 8. Zechariah's on duty in the temple. It's his shift. He's been picked to burn incense at the time of prayer. And as the smoke rises to heaven, uh, so do the prayers of the people. And the, the pleasing smell was thought to, to represent the, the pleasing aroma of the people's prayers uh, to God. And Zechariah is alone inside the holy place in the temple. Everyone else is outside, verse 10. All the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then all of a sudden, verse 11, he's not alone. An angel is standing right there on the right side of the altar. Do you notice that? This is a detail only an eyewitness would know. It's a detail that shows, once again, Luke researched thoroughly. He checked his facts, probably even spoke to Zechariah himself. When Zechariah sees the angel, he's gripped with fear. That's pretty standard any time anyone sees an angel. But the angel says, verse 13, don't be afraid, and then adds, your prayer has been heard. Isn't that great? Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to give him the name John. Now we didn't even know that he had been praying. But if it's the time of prayer, then perhaps it's not surprising that he was praying. But I guess the question is, what was he praying? Now it could have been for a baby. I suggested he was praying for a baby in the kids' talk. But I actually think from his reaction a little later, down in verse 18, that he'd actually that he'd actually stopped praying for children. Maybe even decades earlier, he'd given up on children, I think. So what was he praying? Well, perhaps the same thing that the people outside were praying. They could have been praying about all sorts of things. Uh, but I think Luke mentions verse 10 that the people outside were praying because he wants us to think about what a nation would be praying about. Israel was a land under oppression. They lived there, but it wasn't theirs. It was Roman. And Herod, their king, wasn't even Jewish. He was a Roman appointment from Idumea. He'd come to power through treachery and bloodshed. And even the temple that they were praying in was built by Herod. Every time they went to pray, their noses were rubbed in it. They were reminded of their oppression. They are in the promised land, but it wasn't theirs. Gentiles ruled them. Gentiles made the decisions. Gentiles grew rich by the fruit of their soil and the sweat of their brow. So perhaps the prayers that were being offered that day were some of these. When, O oh Lord, when will you act? Where is your Messiah? Rescue us from evil men. For example, if we flip over the page into chapter 2 of Luke, we meet Simeon, uh, verse 25 of chapter 2, who we're told was waiting for the consolation of Israel. 
Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And Anna, verse 38 of chapter 2, she meets the baby Jesus and then she speaks to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This is quite widespread in the people of Israel. They were looking forward, praying for God to act. Those are the prayers the people are praying. Those are the prayers that I think God is answering when the angel says your prayer has been heard. Because John is the start of God's rescue plan. John is the starting pistol for the race. John is the support band for the headline act of Jesus. He's preparing the way for Jesus. Uh, the angel continues, verse 14, he will be a joy and delight to you. Now, you would expect an old childless, childless couple who had given up hope, they would be joyful, wouldn't they? They'd just be, their eyes would pop. Can you believe this? But it's not just Zechariah and Elizabeth. Many will rejoice because of his birth. Well, why would many rejoice? Because John was going to be more than your average baby, verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Now there's a good verse for those of us who baptise babies, but that's just beside the point, you know, let's not go there. Um, just like God's great heroes of the past, who were used by God for his purposes, those great heroes from the past were equipped with his Holy Spirit. Uh, judges and prophets and priests and kings, this baby will be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. Uh, we're reminded of Samson, who was never to take wine, a mighty man who rescued Israel from her enemies. John would be like that. Except his rescue would not be with swords and spears, but he would bring a rescue of repentance. John will fight for repentance. Uh, look at verse 16. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. He will fight by getting people ready for God. God is coming. John's job is to make sure people are looking in the right direction when he arrives. Because unfortunately, there has been a long history of Israel running away from God. Now that's what we all need to do to God. All of us need to turn back to him, to stop running in the other direction, stop ignoring him, stop living as if we run, we ruled our lives, and let God be God. Now God is calling you to that today. Well, the angel continues. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, at that point, he's quoting Malachi chapter 4. Uh, these are almost the last verses of the Old Testament. These are 400 years old, these words. Uh, and these last words of the Old Testament are a promise that God would send a prophet, someone like Elijah, a, a, a desert-dwelling, courageous, radical proclaimer of God's message. And he would come before the Lord arrived. 
and he would prepare people for the Lord so that they'd be ready to welcome him. Now that was the promise 400 years previous. It's a long time to wait, isn't it? A long time between God's promise and him keeping his promise. It's a long time for Israel to keep praying and to keep trusting. I wonder what your long-term prayers are. How long have you been praying for your heart's desire? For a baby? Or a partner? Or healing? Or salvation of a friend or family member? 10 years? 20? Longer? I know some of you have prayed for the salvation of your friends and family for 30, 40, 50 years. How about 400? But God always keeps his promise. And finally, he's answered prayer. Elizabeth will have a son. It's amazing news. Well, how does Zechariah respond to this amazing good news? Poor old Zechariah, it's all a bit much to take in, isn't it? Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure? How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Now there it is. That's the question Luke is interested in. How can I be sure? It's news that seems too good to be true. The facts seem to contradict it. Zechariah is saying, I need some extra evidence. (laughs) Do you ever pray for something and then you're surprised when God actually answers it? (laughs) Uh, I've done that. Perhaps it doesn't say much about how much faith I had, but I guess what it does show on the positive side is that God is not stopped by my lack of faith. I, I must have had a little bit of faith. So how does the angel answer Zechariah's question? This request for more evidence, how can I be sure? Verse 19. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. I think that's the tone of it. (laughs) In other words, what do you mean, how can you be sure? Look at me. I'm delivering news straight from God himself. Is that not evidence enough? And then there are consequences for his lack of faith, verse 20. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. (laughs) Zechariah had kept the commandments blamelessly. He was a priest, but he didn't trust God's promise. And sure enough, verse 22, when he comes out to greet the people, he can't speak a word. Now, next week, we will see by comparison how Mary reacts when she receives similar news. An angel with a message. She asks in verse 34, a few verses further on, how will this be? It's a very similar question, isn't it? But there's faith behind her question because once it is explained to her that she'll be pregnant by the Holy Spirit, um, she says, verse 38, may it be to me as you have said. It's quite different, isn't it? In other words, that's good enough for me. Bring it on. One negative example about not being sure 
and one positive example. And so Zechariah goes home, sure enough, soon after his wife Elizabeth falls pregnant. Now she, at least, is in no doubt who gets the credit. Verse 25, the Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. He's been considerate by taking away my disgrace. Childlessness was shameful. And now finally God has removed her shame and replaced it with a pregnancy. Now you'll have to wait till next week to find out how Elizabeth's story finishes, but spoiler alert, there's not really a lot of suspense is there because God always keeps his promises. Now God taking away her disgrace, it reminds us of another promise that God made. Not to a disgraced wife, but to a disgraced nation. I think Luke wants us to see Elizabeth as a model in miniature of what God is doing for Israel. I think we're meant to see Elizabeth as a a small example, a small type, picture, uh, of what God has done for the nation of Israel, who was also a barren woman. Isaiah 54 uh, was 70 sorry, 500 years previously, uh, God is comforting Israel in exile. And he promises that he will restore her like a barren woman who who finally gives birth. And and once again, the land will be filled with people. And and he says this about Israel. Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid, you will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, exile, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Exile was the childlessness uh, and the return and and the the new peace of being in the land was, was, uh, the the image was of of a childless, barren woman who has children through God. He's taken away Israel's reproach. God did it for Elizabeth. God did it for Israel. And all of that is through Jesus. And he's doing it for his church. He is faithful in saving his people, taking away our disgrace, building his kingdom so that it stretches beyond the borders and people flood into his kingdom. God is faithfully keeping his promises. Answering, his, answering our prayers, even if sometimes we don't believe them. Uh, almost two years ago, we started a, a consultation process with REACH Australia. Uh, they suggested that one of the things we should do was to set a target for how many people we wanted to see God convert every year. Now, we had some problems with that theologically. You know, it's not up to us to save people and God saves people. 
And then they said, under God, set a target and then put some plans in place to help that happen and pray. Pray that God might achieve that target. To be honest, we, we started to pray, but I'm not sure I really believe God would do it. But in the last two years, we've seen that God is doing it. New people are visiting our church every week. Uh, new people are being intentionally welcomed and connected. Uh, people are running, uh, uh, being involved in Christianity Explored courses and people are making decisions to follow Jesus and they're becoming Christians and people are joining our church. We shouldn't be surprised, should we? Because God always keeps his promises. He answers uh, answers the prayers of his people and we can be sure of that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for Zechariah. We thank you for people like Doubting Thomas uh, because both of those, I guess, are, are pretty close to the way we often feel. Uh, that we know with our heads that you are powerful and yet we sometimes doubt that in our hearts. We thank you that you hear prayers, you answer them, and we can be confident uh, of, of you and of the facts of Jesus and his birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension and return. Uh, please help us uh, with joy to trust you and to live for you. Amen. We are going to sing.